Your neurons are constantly firing even when you're sleeping. Right. On this show, I try to capture moments of time. And part of doing that is, for me, about capturing the room that these conversations are recorded in. Rooms in the modern world often involve high-pitched words in the background. I'm not a fan of high-pitched words, but they are something that comes with the territory often of capturing the room. I am a fan, though, of messy sound. Clean sound has a lot of benefits, but I think that we, we forget that there are positives as well as negatives to messy sound. In fact, I'm told by some listeners to the podcast that sometimes when they're listening to messy sound, it triggers their ASMR, which is Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, which is really enjoyable. It's a really enjoyable sensation. So I'm pleased that as well as some people who get annoyed by messy sound and find it hard to listen to, that I'm also causing some people pleasant joyful sensations as well as hopefully giving them conversations that they're enjoying that's a long way of saying that this episode was recorded in an environment that's quite noisy it's not ideal at times but do you know what just relax into it and get used to it and just like when you're in a normal room you'll get used to the background sound and you'll be able to enjoy the conversation well i like looking at the brain in particular and how the brain processes things how an infant's brain, like, structurally, is quite different. Like, the amount of connections in the brain are really different to an adult's brain. And they do process it in very different ways. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Janet. Hello, Janet. Hiya. <laughs> it's been a long time, I think, since we've yeah. seen each other. I mean, time's relative, so to some people it won't be very long at all. And I should say we're recording in a Costa in a Waterstones in central London, which is to explain the background sound. First question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? So we used to work together at Oakwood Library yeah. in the London Borough of Enfield. That's right. And you were essentially my line manager, I think. You were, like, a supervisor. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I was, like, the supervisor without the pay for it. <laughs> yeah, I was a scale three, whatever that means, and you were a casual. Yeah, so I just come in on Saturdays and it, like, day during the week for me and part-time while yeah. you were studying, right? Yeah, I was in my undergraduate degree doing psychology. I mean, how long ago do you think it was since we last seen each other? When did you leave? So I was I started at Oakland in, like, September of 2007. Right. I was, like, uni. And I stayed until 2011, I think. Oh, um, uh, right. I think you might have been gone before then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went off to, to start working with children yeah. on behalf of the library service, and now, now I no longer work for Enfield. Now I can say what I like without... without worrying about council policy which is you've got to say no comment to everything we don't have an opinion about that it's it's nice to have that that released actually that's handy to remember now because I'm talking to someone who knows knows what it's all about so uh, the conversation could easily end up with me slagging off Enfield Council (laughs) but that's okay not that I'm necessarily slagging off Enfield Council there's lots of great people who were there so you were studying psychology Mm -hmm. and you were a student and I guess I was I don't know my mid 
mid-twenties, early to mid-twenties, there was somebody who was my manager, yeah. and then everybody else was either the same level as me or beneath yeah. me, I guess, which I feel uncomfortable with the idea of hierarchy, so it's always a bit weird. Yeah. So yeah, what was I like to, what was I like to work uh, under, I guess? <laughs> we got away with a lot. I remember on Saturdays, in terms of like having extended breaks, yeah. and things, which is nice, because working on Saturday is no fun. Right. Yeah, I didn't know any different, because that was my job with the Saturday job, but um, yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah. Very I mean, easy going. That's good. That's nice to hear. Yeah, on Saturdays, yeah, I was kind of in charge. In fact, I think on a Saturday at like half past five, I was the only person, like the highest member of the library service, because like everybody else closed at five, uh, which was, was always, a, I thought, was a strange, strange situation for me to find myself in. Yeah. And the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? I am a research associate at the Centre for Cognitive Brain. Centre for Brain and Cognitive Development. I should know that acronym. <laughs> so it's a part of Birkbeck University and it's a baby lab essentially. And I do research with babies who are at high risk of autism. Oh, well. Yeah. Well, okay, so you've got your degree. Yeah. Have you, have you got any other sort of degrees since then? Yep, I've got my master's and I've just had it in my PhD thesis um, just before Christmas. So I don't get the title of doctor just yet until I do like a three-hour defence, essentially an interview about what I did in my PhD. So right. that's like in the work. So then I'll get my doctor. So title. soon you'll be a doctor. Yeah. Wow. It's been a lot of work. Yeah, I mean it must have been a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, it's like seven years of like. So I had three years of an undergraduate, a year of a master's, and another three years of PhD. Wow. So I've just been in university since I was eighteen. So what, what, what attracted you to psychology? I always knew I wanted to work in psychology in some sense. I was thinking more like clinical psychology, so working with people with like, schizophrenia, OCD, that type of thing. But I was also interested in children, like autism, ADHD, like conduct disorder. So I knew I wanted to do research, and it wasn't until I finished my undergraduate degree and had no options of what I wanted to do in terms of it was so hard to get onto doctorate for clinical. I ended up working as a state agent, so I was a PA for a week. I did, like, literally... I was one of those people that used to go around knocking on people's doors and asking them to, like, do direct debits for charities. Okay, I, did, okay. I did that for two days, I just couldn't hack it. And then my dissertation supervisor just emailed me saying, there's a PhD going, I've put you forward for it. the interviews next week. Wow. Sort it out, yeah. So I didn't really choose it, it chose me, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess your specialisation chose you. Yeah. But there must have been a point where you decided to go towards this area of stuff, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah, how did that happen? I was kind of still adamant on the fact that I do, like, schizophrenia, looking to, like, sort of mental disorders, psychological disorders. And then, about a year and a half into my PhD, so halfway through, I was like, actually, I quite like what I'm doing. <laughs> I didn't go into it liking what I did, and right. because it was like sort of a ready-made PhD question, so they just need someone to find the studies and like find the answers to the questions they were posing. So it wasn't something that I wasn't like driven to do that question, I wasn't driven to investigate spatial abilities in infants and children, but then... The more I got into it, by the end of the second year, I was just completely in love with the subject. And, right. Yeah. Spatial development in children. Yeah. What, what, it, what, what, <laughs> what is, is that? What is that? Primarily, my thesis was about how children learn to locate touches on the body, which sounds a bit theoretical and vague. And, and it was. It was vague and theoretical. But, for example, a monkey, there's a study out there, a monkey was like 
put tubes on their arms when they're at birth and so they really restricted the movement of their monkey's limbs and then once those tubes were removed like a few months into their lives the, and the touch was applied to the monkey's body the monkey had no clue where the touch was coming from so it's almost like you need to have some active experience of your environment or the ability to move your limbs to really then locate something that, that's an impinging touch on the limbs okay so that's really interesting yeah and we found that like for example we've done a few studies where we crossed over babies feet and we like tickled the soles of their feet and six month olds if you tickle their feet in the uncrossed posture they're really good they wiggle their foot that's been buzzed or whatever um, but if you cross it over if for example you tickle their right foot they'll wiggle their left foot even though there was nothing applied to that first at all. Yeah. So there's just a sort of like a great sort of learning curve that occurs. Like for us, it's a trivial task. Yeah. Like we feel attached in our hand, we know exactly where it's coming from, we know what hand it's on. But it suggests that it's not an innate ability and really it's driven by our experience of our bodies, the environment. Right. I mean, babies are like little machines of learning. Right? Yeah, completely. I mean, I've worked with babies quite a lot, I guess. It's always been fascinating watching how quick the under fives for example like how quick they develop yeah. like week on week you know it'd be like a I always thought of it as a flick book you know I'd see them like in stages so I'd see more changes than, yeah. than their parents might who see them all the time yeah. so you don't notice the tiny changes so you spend a lot of time tickling babies feet then? Oh, that was part of my PhD right. what I do is slightly different now but so we're looking at that sort of like cognitive markers for autism. Currently, autism is diagnosed at about three or four years old using behavioural tasks, deficits in social and communication, cognitive abilities. But we're trying to see if there's early markers for babies at high risk of autism. So their older sibling has diagnosis, and babies at five, ten, and fourteen months come into the lab, and we test them on a range of tasks to see at what point they differ from typically developing children. Right. I mean, because it is hard to diagnose anything in the under fives because of the fact that they have not yet got to the point of language or whatever, so you can't really talk to them. I've worked with the under fives with autism or spectrum disorders of, of various kinds. Yeah. It's a kind of very complicated area, the yeah, diagnosis of, sure. of children. I mean, what, what's your sort of what's your approach or opinion on, on diagnosing children? So I don't. It's not part of my role to diagnose. I'm not a clinician. Right. Do you mean it sounds like labelling there? Yeah, I guess so. Because I, I mean, I, I think labels are complicated things, aren't they? They can be really, really useful to give you an identity sometimes if you don't know what's going on with yourself. Like I've got a couple of labels that I can put to myself now about my mental health, for example, and it's handy. But I kind of decided on those labels myself that was my choice whereas often with diagnosis that's a label being put on somebody so there's there is yeah. lots of schools of thought on it aren't there? so I, I'm not, I don't really have a strong opinion about it I think it's good in some respects because without that diagnosis they're not going to get the support they need in, for example schools right. and often a few of the mums have come in and said they didn't know what was wrong with their child and they were having problems with them and like the opposition disorder and for example things like that and it wasn't until they got a diagnosis they were like oh okay right. I can deal with this behaviour and there's a reason for it there's not just Right. right, right, right. They don't take it personally. No. Right. So I've seen mums kind of going through that process, and dads too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In the, in that respect, it's really it's really useful. But I can understand the flip side of like right. perhaps it's also a self-limiting prophecy if they like got mild symptoms. I don't think they're diagnosed, but they've only got mild symptoms. They'll say they're on the spectrum. Right. Or maybe Asperger's. Or something. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's really tough to get a diagnosis these days. Yeah.
I'm really strict about it. Yeah, definitely it is. And uh, I think sometimes if you can't get a diagnosis for your child, it really is frustrating for parents as well at, at school because they're not getting any of the help or the specialist yeah, exactly. care that you kind of need. Like, then now there's special schools out there that yeah. Tailor to right, but you can't get in unless you're yeah, diagnosed. Yeah, statement. Yeah. So I guess you're kind of helping people to make sense of, yeah. of some of the of some of that stuff. I mean, when you say parents kind of going, they didn't know what was wrong with their child, almost like the, the good thing or the maybe a more positive way of like looking at, yeah. at autism or autistic spectrum disorders is that, that nothing's wrong. Exactly. Uh, they've just got a different it's operating system, different, right? Exactly. Yeah, they've just got a different way of thinking and they fixate a lot more but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a problem. Maybe yeah. they're perhaps more focused on one area that they can specialise in and they find joy for it. Yeah, who decided that neurotypical was the, the way of being, right? Neurotypicals, we decided yeah. that. A lot of the parents that come in think that as well. They think that it's just their personalities, it's not going to be a deficit that hinders them right, in life. So I think, yeah. And they're so keen on research as well, which is always helpful because these are quite long, drawn-out studies. They, we recruit them and they're four months and they come in at five, ten, fourteen months and then two years, three years. So there's a lot of visits and they're like recruited from all over the country. And so. Yeah, and what's it, what, so what's your, what's your job? What do you do then with oh, these, with these children? So we do a lot of testing. I know that's a scary word, but it's just literally like computer-operated tasks, so eye tracking tasks to see what they fixate on on the screen if we give them like lots of things on the screen what do they focus on and we do EEG tasks so that's we're recording the naturally occurring electricity in their brain screen based tasks like what the brain does in response to social stimuli versus non-social stimuli so, like faces versus like toys or books or whatever right. they see lots of different things how they react to stimulation so in terms of like GSR and heart rate does that increase when there's lots of activity going around because one of the symptoms of autism is hyperacusis, which is just lots of stimulation from something that shouldn't be too stimulating. So adults with high-function autism, for example, they say, I can hear a buzzing from your laptop or something. Right. And they can really focus on it and it'll be really irritating to them. Some children don't like to be in touch because it's really a Right. That's something people yeah. don't understand often when they... Yeah. yeah I mean, I, that was something I, I had to learn, like, sort of those kind of things. like. Yeah. If you are neurotypical, you have to learn different social cues if you want to like interact with people who, who have a different social understanding. And we don't really know why that comes about. So, for, for example, the touch thing, we don't really know why they are so aversive to it. It might be just like the mechanoreceptors in the skin that are extra sensitive. We're not sure why. And there's, so, like, there's still lots of research to be done to right. figure it out, to then do like interventions that are effective rather than just blindly around in the dark. Right, when you've got a baby, any baby, and they're crying and you don't know why, that's frustrating. But I, I imagine, like, well, I, I, I know from having observed it, like, that you have a, a spectrum disorder. You might be crying for the sort of similar reasons you're talking about, yeah. a buzzing sound that's overpowering yeah. you. But you, but you can't, it. you still can't verbalise it at three, four, maybe, you know, or, like, and, and so that must make parents feel very complicated about, about yeah. the whole experience. Yeah, yeah very much so. they, they should know how to look after their children. I think that's how, I've, I think a lot of parents I've met have this kind of weight of, feeling like they should yeah. know the secrets but they don't and then they're frustrated and then that can yeah. go two ways I guess they can blame themselves or they can blame the child neither of which <laughs> is appropriate yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean so that's kind of so I guess what your what your kind of day-to-day job is is half the time you're like playing with children and half the time you're staring at computer screens yeah at data. 
pretty much sums up my day. Right. So the babies are coming from anywhere between like four to six hours. And we're constantly doing tasks with them, like scales with them, and different developmental scales with them, just to like see where they lie on the typical scale, if you will. And then it'll be the next day analysing data for specific tasks. So my expertise is in EG. So I've been doing lots of EG analysis and how babies like like their brain responds to in a certain way. And so what's EG? Um, the recording of naturally occurring electricity in the brain. Ah, right. So like your neurons are constantly firing even when you're sleeping. Right. And we just look at specific tasks and see what the general behaviour of the of the brain is, if you will, in response to like a particular picture or a particular noise or a particular array that is on the screen. And are there any patterns that have been observed so far? I mean, I know you wouldn't want to, yeah. you're too early in your data to, to say, yeah. but I mean, is there kind of general thinking which guiding your, your... I think there are studies that have been done by people that are back, back already. Um, I've not been involved with that at all. <laughs> I've only started in, like, October, so right. I'm really new to the team. Right, so it's been, like, three, four months, five months? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I've not, I've not long been there, so... Right. Currently, I'm just like cleaning the data, so the data has to go for like loads of pre-processing steps, and then it'll be given to someone else to do the analysis. Probably. It must be fun working with babies, or is it not? I think so. No, it definitely breaks <laughs> up my day. Yeah, I mean, I like working with kids, yeah, uh, and the under fives are really interesting. Yeah. I mean, babies are less interesting to me than sort of three-year-olds. I think yeah. two and a half, three-year-olds are like my, that's my right. sweet spot of age <laughs> when they're kind of when they got to a point where they're kind of social but they're not regurgitating the messages of society when they're still at that interesting moment where they have their own uh, their their own own minds yeah (laughs) I quite like working they're easy babies are easier to test than toddlers for sure because you can just like do it with them and like placate them if they get a bit sniffly or a bit grizzly it's like here have a rice cake and that's less useful for like three-year-olds right? because because they know their own minds. They're like, I don't want to play this game anymore. Yeah, I don't want that, right? Yeah. They go on something else. Yeah. Mm. So like, I don't want to play the game. So right. If they say that, it's like, all right then, we won't play. What do we do? And so, like, the, their mums stay with them, though, I guess. Mm-hmm. You're not like, yeah, looking no, after no. children. You're no. studying children. Yeah, exactly. So the mums, or the, mums or the or dads. Or dads, yeah, um, sorry. Yeah. Sorry? <laughs> um, they often, they're with them the whole day. So, yeah. like, we find with atypical infants or high risk with autism, they don't really like strangers so as much as neurotypicals do, so it's nice having the mum there, and they know the signals a lot better than us. We see them maybe once every like four months. They see them every day, so yeah. they need that. Too. Yeah, they need the mums. I worked with um, a group every Tuesday yeah. for about five years, I guess. Various different special needs, so not just people on the autistic spectrum but also people with down syndrome yeah. or, you know because they're under five no one really knows what a lot of the special needs were yeah. because I would see them once a week they wouldn't be familiar with me but then by the end of the term yeah. you know then they would be familiar with me and that was an interesting sort of emotional process for me uh, yeah I mean you never really but when they're that young though you know they're never going to remember you so oh, it's all for, sure, for you yeah. it's not, 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 not for them but I mean, had you had much experience of like dealing with babies? I guess because you're you're not you're not that you're not that old. Um, you haven't got any children yourself, no, I assume. No, 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 I, do I not. can't see how you'd have had time in the time that you've been doing all this work. Between eighteen and twenty-five. Right. Pop tag kid. Right. My sister had my nephews when I was fifteen and nineteen, so I was always around babies for about teenage years. But it wasn't until I was just like, oh, I'm doing a PhD in infancy. Just going to be around babies all the time. Right. So I've always been comfortable around babies and yeah. children, so that's never been a problem. That's not. I mean, yeah. yeah, having had experience in your family, that yeah, that will do exactly. it, right? What what A levels did you study? 
Oh god, this is going back a bit. Just did that test, isn't it? Can you remember um, what A-levels you studied? I did. I didn't do very sciencey ones, I don't think. I did uh, psychology, RS in philosophy, English literature, and English language. So not really sciencey ones. Right. Well. Quite a sciencey field now. Yeah, and then. What made you decide to do your undergraduate degree then? I was, I'm in an R in about between psychology or doing something like teaching. Then my psychology teacher was like, you're going to get bored of teaching, go do psychology. So I did. Right. So, right. Yeah. And, and with the, you know, it sounds like you, you're not going to get bored of this job. No. It sounds a, endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Although I'm sure there's some boring moments oh, going sure. through data. <laughs> yeah, it's always a bit tedious. But um, there's always something new to be doing. There's never like... Sometimes for like a week you might have the same day for a week, but you know that in a few like days' time you'll be testing for an entire day. And it's a very different experience testing different babies and different yeah. age groups and just a lot of variety, which yeah. I quite like. And I guess you've you've studied like non-stop right till now, and yeah. now you're now you're not studying, but your job is within the kind of academic research. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have a, a year out or any of those things. No, I stuck straight through. So I guess you could call you driven, I guess? Essentially. I mean, I think I just <laughs> took opportunities that were like... You don't sound that driven, by the way. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I, don't, I, th- I don't know. I've never really like looked at myself as being quite driven or whatever, but whenever uh, people were yeah. like, well... You've not had a gap yet. You've not really deviated from education at all. Right. You've not gone to work for like three years and then come back to it. Well, you mean you work hard, but you don't like. I don't. I mean, from what I know of you, when yeah. you used to work with me, you would you were, were working hard, but you were quite happy to not be working as well. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. I think there's got to be balance in life. What else have you done in those those years oh, since God. we last saw each other? I mean, I know. you've obviously been studying. Literally just like, like handed in my thesis like a month ago, this time last month. So it's dominated my head for quite a long time for the last four years. How, what have I done? I'm not sure. I mean, you've studied. That's definitely yeah. something you've done. Yeah, and that's a significant amount of time, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I've been abroad a lot, but like with my job, of course. I'm oh, going right. to like conferences and like Seattle and I'm off to New York next month. That's nice. Yeah. It's nice to have a job that sends you to cool yeah. places. Yeah, and pays for you, so which is great. That's wicked. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I've been on like a few committees, so one of the conferences, the first conference I went to was for psychology for the postgraduate affairs group. Um, it's just like a team of postgraduates run by postgraduates for postgraduates. So we put on a conference every year and there's meetings, you can get involved in the committee. And I was the undergraduate liaison officer, whatever. <laughs> and it's just like sort of prompting uh, or like disseminating information about the organisation and what it can do for postgraduates. They offer bursaries, for example, and like there's a conference which is nice and friendly, you can present your research. That's a major part of doing a PhD is you have to go to all these conferences and present your research. But if you've never done it before, it's right. so hellish. So you're standing in front of a lot of people. Oh yeah. And what was, I mean, does that come naturally to you? I don't think it does, but I'm fine with it now. Right. Like, obviously I get so super nervous, but once, I've done it so many times now that yeah. I'm kind of getting to it. I think you go on about three conferences every year, and then my supervisor of my PhD was quite good in that he'd get us to do, put on presentations every time that there was, like, a big name in the university or whatever. Yeah. on presentations and just got used to presenting our research and explaining it and what it meant and the application of it. Right. And, I mean, I guess, so is it fair to say that university was always on the cards? Oh, for sure, yeah. Right. So you were brought up in a family that were, like, 
you're going to uni or uh, you chose to go? me right. that was focused on that. So my parents went really fast. They, didn't, they never, like, not that they're in a bad way, but they didn't care if I did well or didn't. Some girls happy. Yeah, that's a nice way of being. Yeah, that's a good because way I, wasn't, I didn't have that pressure. I only, only had the pressure that I got myself. Right. So I always knew I was going to university. And in the last year of sick, my parents figured it out that I was going to university. Was like, By the way, I'm going to this uni next year. Yeah. I mean, did your parents go to uni? No, they no. didn't. They okay. had like secondary school education, I think. Right. So you're first, you're first generation yeah. in uni. Yeah. I mean, have you got siblings? Yeah, I've got an older brother, an older sister, and a younger sister. But I was the first one to go to uni. Right. Yeah. Right. And did, did, so are you the only one in your family in uni? My younger sister went to university, but she did English literature. Right. Which is harder to get a career out of. So. In, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So she didn't stay in it. I think it's easier than theatre studies, I'll tell you that. Oh, really? <laughs> but yeah. I mean, so that, that must be kind of a, an interesting thing then, I guess, to be the only person. Like, you're so in the in the academic world, right? Yeah. And your family aren't, I guess. Yeah, it's quite an alien concept to them. I don't think they really understand what I do. <laughs> Many people don't. And um, I'll throw, I do, like, throwaway phrases. I'm like, oh, I've got to test a baby now, I've got to go, bye. <laughs> and it's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> right. What are you doing to these babies? Yeah, that must be, uh, that must be a quite amusing uh, yeah. frequently. <laughs> yeah, they just accept that. They know I'm a scientist or a doctor or some sort. It's like, <laughs> I don't give out medicine. That's, I don't do that bit. But, yeah. Well, that's cool. I think I both my parents went to university, but my I've got really old siblings. Yeah. That, that'll offend them if they hear that, but, but much older siblings who, who had been to university. Yeah. So by the time I got, got, it did seem like it was... You know the standard path, yeah. I guess, and I guess schools teach you that a bit more now yeah. as well. If you if you go to sixth form, it's assumed that you're all going to go to uni, right? Um, I went to Edward County School, so it's an all girls one. Right. And it was just a given that every single person would be going to. Uni. I know. So they you, just push for it. Right. I mean, so you went so you went to an all girls school in North yeah. London. Yeah. I mean, what what was an all, what's an all girls school like? I mean, I went to a really comprehensive school. <laughs> yeah, both genders. Yeah. There was like, I mean, it was fine. I didn't know any different. So I think being in an all-girls school did allow me to like be a bit more confident with my intelligence and like speak up a bit more in class and things like that than if like boys were like, oh, you're nerdy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been studies, unfortunately for for everyone. I think there's been some studies showing that uh, girls do better in in in, uh, in single sex yeah. environments. Boys do better in mixed. Yeah, uh, which is an awkward an awkward thing yeah, exactly. for everybody to deal with. Yeah, um, but like in terms of the actual like the social dynamics of it, girls are just a lot more bitchier when they're like are surrounded like 100% girls. Right. Yeah. But as I say, I, I was probably one of those girls as well. Like looking yeah. back on hindsight. I mean, I, th- I think men are, and boys are perfectly capable of being uh, what we could think of as bitchy, yeah. uh, as, as women uh, are. But I mean, we're not. We're all socialised differently, and I guess when you're in a school environment where everyone's being socialised and in a certain kind of way, then it's gonna. Yeah, you're gonna have that. Was, did it feel quite competitive then? Is that what you mean by bitchy or like? Was that what? What does bitchy mean? <laughs> Psychological traumatic. <laughs> That's what I'm joking. Okay. It wasn't that bad. Um, no. Um, there was just a lot of infighting and like really clicky, and which was fine because everyone had their own clicks. Yeah. But um, looking back now, I'm like, oh, okay. But it's like you go your own path, and it completely, really randomly, like it completely stops once we got to sixth form. I think right. people wanted to be there rather than 
being yeah. forced into education and having to be there for six hours a day and you kind of got rid of the people that didn't want to be there and didn't want to excel and were a bit of a hindrance to your life. Well, you're right. I mean, in the sixth form, it's consensual. Everybody's choosing to go to school. And, and, I mean, I had a sort of massively bullied at school until I was in my sixth form and still a bit bullied after that. But after the sixth form, nobody who were my peers were bullying me. Everybody was all right with me in my my classes after sixth form. Before that, Everyone had the same sort of, like, academic goals in sixth form, whereas, like, there was a lot of people just wasting time paying lip service to it because they had to and they had to be in school before until 16 and they didn't really care for it so they didn't think they knew they weren't going to go to university so it's just like whatever yeah so it was an all girls school like it's not a religious school is it? no we were next door to one though <laughs> so I don't know why like there's always so much rivalry between the schools that are really close together and it just seems absurd now <laughs> no there was no religious elements to it, but they were like really strict uniform rules and like behaviour rules for example Right. Which we were taught in the first year that we were there, and then it just like declined massively. Right. I mean, and there were no there were no boys there. No, which no I guess is means there's less distractions, <laughs> but it means that potentially it means that you like you're not going to be so used to boys when you come into contact with them, right? I guess. Um, probably. Like, I don't think I had too much of a problem with that. I because you got siblings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And my brother's friends were always around and stuff. Right. So it wasn't an issue. Um, I can understand why though. It would be if someone was like, yeah. And especially if you're mega shy, and then you're thrown into society where there's a mix of people. Yeah. Right, and you go from being used to sort of like everybody being listened to relatively equally in class yeah. to the complicated gender divides the of politics. Like, right. of it. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, in theory, you know, and, and practice, I think in most situations, you know, men talk over women. So you had to, at least you had your adolescence yeah. without too much of that in your yeah. academic situation. Yeah. Maybe that's been a big help when you've gone into mixed environments in, in uni and stuff, I don't know. Um, psychology doesn't tend to be too mixed. Right. It's predominantly female. Oh, right, um, okay. It's like really, the library series. Yeah. Like, a lot of it's really... Like, I don't think... I think there's maybe 10 boys in my undergraduate class, and there's 150 of us. I think I might be exaggerating, but... But, so, so, but, but much, still, there yeah. was a lot more girls than boys. Yeah. Um, women, yeah. But young people, than, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Young females <laughs> and young males, I don't know. All of these words are problematic in different ways if they're coming out of my mouth. But yeah. So, um, so and did you enjoy your undergraduate degree? Um, I think I enjoyed the first and second year. The third year I found it really tough for some reason. I just wasn't prepared for like the amount of work I'd have to do, yeah. which is surprising because I worked hard all the way through. But it was just a shock to the system. I had like I think I had one day where I was in lectures from like ten in the morning to six at night, and it was just like oh god, it's horrible. But I did enjoy. I think yeah, I enjoyed my PhD and my masters a lot more. Right, because you're independently doing Yeah, and I knew what to expect, so I knew not to make the mistakes I did in my third year. I was a lot more prepared for it, and yeah, there's yeah. a nicer pace to it as well. And with the PhD, there's no exams to take or anything, it's just you do your research, you plod along, and you find another interesting question to come up than your answers that you found. Right. It's more of like, almost like a continuous, cumulative thing than just one essay at the end of the year that you have to do on this entire subject that you've been right. crammed into your brain for like two weeks. Yeah, so is there anything else that's happened to you in the time since I last saw you? I don't know. 
think off the top of my head, if you ask me questions about specific things, I'd probably go. What areas of people's lives are there? I mean, I mean, I, I, have you got a, a partner? Yeah. Oh, nice. Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. Um, yeah, I asked that question, and there you go. You see, I asked the question, but it didn't necessarily lead anywhere. Did it? Uh, okay. <laughs> um, it's relatively new. Our family's known each other years and things, and they set us up essentially. Okay. But um, so we've been together six months now. So. Right. So you're you're about the same amount of time into the relationship as you are into uh, into your uh, into your new job. Yeah, into the real life. Away from right. Life. Yeah. So it's quite nice. Yeah. It happened around the same time. So. Cool. And you, so you travel about the world. I mean, are you still living in in Enfield? Or you... Yeah, I'm still living in Enfield. Moved from where I was before when I started, but literally ten minutes up the road. So, right. Yeah. And you're, you're, you know, obviously you're no longer living with your parents. Were you? No, I still am. Oh, are you? <laughs> it was really hard to move out on a PhD wage. Yeah, barely sure. Anything, don't don't so. don't get me wrong. I, I understand yeah. that. Sure. I mean, these days people live with their parents for a lot longer. Yeah. I mean, what's that like? Oh, it's fine. I do everything I want, basically. It's pretty much the same. It's nice having my mum cook my dinner and do my laundry and things like that. And then I just like come and go as I please, which is also nice. That is, that is pretty good. <laughs> you, you, you're, you're, the problem is you'll get used to that. I know. And then, I know. We've had discussions about this. Right. About when we, I move out, like, how am I going to survive in adult life? Yeah, you probably, you probably should start like, Yeah, my mum's going to start preparing for me. Like, I'm like, I need to learn how to cook. Now it's just like oven meals I can do, and about a pasta bake I can just about do, right. but the pasta like the sauce has to come from a jar. <laughs> no part of it is homemade. So you're basically highly trained academically, yeah. but um, domestically you've got no skills. I would die if I was left to my own devices. Right, fair, and you know, I mean, being highly trained academically and having no domestic skills has, has worked for lots of men throughout yeah, history. Exactly. So there's no reason why you shouldn't do that. But, yeah. you know, the other way, gender bend it. Yeah, just need to have him do everything. Right. Maybe yeah, maybe that's what you need to be doing, yeah. training him up, like, says, the, says the man that doesn't, doesn't do <laughs> as much housework as his partner, so I should probably shut up. But, yeah. <laughs> Although I can do that. I can do the housework yeah, if I'm allowed. not <laughs> Well, no, 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 I don't choose not to. There's a complicated oh, negotiation. Well, it's a complicated negotiational yeah. uh, thing. We have different standards. We have uh, different yeah. approaches. I mean, there's no way any, there's no way any any man that doesn't do their fair share of the housework comes comes across as well. Um, <laughs> but lots of uh, con- contemplation from a feminist perspective and a personal perspective has gone into the arrangements that we've come to over the 14 oh, wow. years of our relationship. Oh, wow, 14 years. I mean, I'd say that actually domestic chores has been like the biggest area of. Of conflict, if you like, oh gosh, not in a this not in a bad way, but in a in a kind of finding a way of living with someone yeah. is a hard thing to do. Like uh, finding what works yeah. for you. She wants things to be the way she wants. She's a yeah. control freak, and she she accepts that, and I I respect that. Um, but that does mean more work. Right, right, right. It's a, it's definitely a negotiation, though. Yeah. The, the, it's it's definitely me that has the problems with the domestic uh, distribution, even though she does more of it. I, I'm I'm less comfortable with that. Yeah. So yeah, you've got that to look forward to. Yeah. Gosh, you can imagine the arguments now. <laughs> Housing and partners are the main things that people yeah. have in their lives. I mean, what 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 outside interests, I guess, have you got around your studies? Oh my god, I'm going to sound like such a bore now because I've literally just spent from September till no, from August until December, all I was doing was going to work and writing my thesis in the evenings. 
That's all I would do. So I've kind of like been reintroduced to the world in the last right, month. Right, right. So I've just been like, I neglected my friends for many months whilst I was writing up. You just, you don't have the brain capacity and then you feel guilty for not doing it. Yeah. And then it's just a vicious life. I'm still best friends with my friend from secondary school, so we see each other a lot more now. Nice. I went to see Jesse Ware on Friday at the Brixton Academy with some other friends. So cool. I've gone back into like music and seeing things and just not being in my house anymore and looking at a computer screen. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you don't sound like a boy, you sound like a committed person. There's oh, no, no reason you have to have, like, be able to reel off outside interests or hobbies. Yeah. You know, I, that's... I mean, I love shopping. I'm like... <laughs> this is so stereotypical. But, um, I'm a shopaholic for sure. And like, my New Year's resolution was like, I'm not allowed to buy any makeup or any new clothes until the end of March, and I don't know how I'm going to survive. Right. I mean, yeah, that's interesting. Like, so you, so you do a, so you, you, you get, you buy a lot of clothes and makeup. Mm-hmm. And I guess you've already got a lot of clothes and yep. makeup. So, what is it that makes you want to buy more? The act of buying it is just so nice. Okay. And also like having backups. I like to have backups of outfits and backups of makeup. And cool. Like, just be prepared for any eventuality. <laughs> Like, it's ridiculous when I go on holiday and pack. I pack four pairs of shoes for, like, three nights. Cool. Just in case I, I decide mean, I want to change my shoes. If that's, yeah, I mean, that, if that's the way you want to be, that's, yeah. that's fine. I mean, it's it? worked so far, so yeah. why change it? I mean, I guess, like, shopping is dependent on income, right? Which is good, because I'm still living at the mum and dad. Right, so right. <laughs> got a lot of disposable income. Right. Yeah. That'll change. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to that. No. <laughs> I mean, this is why I'm preparing myself, like, slowly, slowly. Right. It's, like, not spend so much. Right. You went to a girls' school when you were a teenager. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you must have gone... Did you go to a mixed school when you were in primary school, if you can remember about that part? <laughs> not that old. Where are we going back to? <laughs> um, yeah, we went to a mixed primary school. I think it's quite... I don't think I've ever seen a single-sex uh, primary school. No, I mean, I think they must exist, yeah. but I, I'm not that familiar with them, no. No, I went to a mixed primary school. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. You're from an interesting. I think you're from like Enfield's a very interesting area of, mm-hmm. of London because yeah. it's it's got really really rich people and really really poor people. Yeah. I mean, nearly every part of London's like that, but yeah. Enfield particularly. You can see the difference, right? Working all around the borough, like I used to do, you really see the the difference in the communities and the the difference in the incomes in those communities and the, and the issues that different different uh, communities have. And I'm not saying anything negative about any community yeah. at all. I knew lovely people from all of those walks of life. I think the, the Guardian's been focusing on Enfield as its like place to look at um, yeah. the way that the cuts have, have, have worked over the last year or so. In fact, that was when I left when I left my job because my job with the council was cut. I wrote a, a comment is free piece for the Guardian, and part of the reason that they accepted that was probably the fact that they're looking at Enfield. Yeah. So, I mean, what was your experience growing up in Enfield? Um, I don't think I noticed it so much when I was younger. Like, right. Especially because like school is quite, especially because like school uniforms and everything, that's the same for everyone. Mm. So it's not like right, one that's, person. That's often an, a good yeah. argument people make for school uniforms. Yeah, is that it's like it's a unified. Sorts out everybody's yeah, whatever their whatever their background yeah. financially, they all look the same. Yeah, I don't think I ever noticed it when I was in secondary school, and then obviously in like university, I had my own job and things. Right. So I didn't ever notice it, and I don't. Do you know? I think. <laughs> I don't think that way. 
I think now I notice it more, just right. I'm more aware. I don't think I was a very aware teenager. I was a bit oblivious to everything. Was but that because you were studying? Or no, I was just really just oblivious. Just oblivious. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't changed that much. I'm pretty oblivious now. But I think, especially like you're a lot more aware of like the news and everything that's going on. Right. You just pay attention to it a bit more before. You just think, oh, it doesn't affect me. It's alright. Right. It's fine. But then it's like, oh, actually, it's affected my parents. So I should probably pay attention. Right. I mean, the, 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 I mean, when the riots happened, you know, some yeah. of the some of the stuff that happened with them happened very close to places where I worked. You know. Yeah. Um, like to my, where I lived. Yeah. Right. Right. It was mega close. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I guess yeah. So yeah. so because your parents are there, and yeah. that becomes more of a concern the way that the way that the communities are interacting. Yeah. When we worked in the library together, do you remember a guy called Mr. Winkworth? He came into the library every week, pretty much. He was an old man. Did he have a lady friend? Right. He yes. brought the, the lady in, the old yeah. lady, every week. And, yeah, I, I mean, so the reason I sort of bring him up, and maybe I should beep out his name, but I probably won't. Um, <laughs> so he, he came in every week, and he was doing a nice thing because he was taking that yeah. old lady who wasn't mobile yeah. down to the library every week. But he was a massive racist. Yeah. <laughs> and I found it very tricky being in a position of being in, in charge of that situation and having to listen to him, because I'm white, uh, he is assuming I agree with him yeah. on everything. I mean, I remember one time he was, you know, one, one time he said to me something like, I don't know who to vote for at the next election, the National Front or the Green Party, right? Like, what the Quite hell? Different. Exactly, the, the opposite. <laughs> But, I mean, he was always assuming this kind of like, oh, you're white, I'm white, we're yeah, in this together. The same thing. Now, you know, this won't come as any news to you, but the listeners might not know, you're not white. No, I'm not. And so that was a, a, a complicated sort of situation to be in, I felt, from, from my point of view, probably even more complicated from your point of view, but with him sort of being actively racist, yeah. and I've got, you know, a person of colour sitting, yeah. sitting next to me, I think he wouldn't, like, he'd never go to you, no. and he, but he, I think at one point he did apologise. Did I, he? I, I think I, I made, but I don't think it was a real apology, I think it was just a, I, I didn't approve of a word he said, and he uh. said sorry, but I mean, it was, still he said the word. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can all assume what kind of a word it was. <laughs> exactly. Um, see, I don't really remember much about him. I don't know if I was just like, really oblivious. You, I, I do remember you being quite oblivious yeah. in a pleasant way. I mean, I don't see why you should not be oblivious when you're working in a casual job, you know, part-time in a library. You know, you were just stuck yeah. in the shelves or yeah, sitting at the I mean, counter. Like, you know, why, why, why should you be aware of everything that's going on if you want to be in your own world? <laughs> Fine, you know. Um, yeah, I can imagine it was quite difficult and... We obviously we're not allowed to comment as well as right. being a member of like Philanthropy, we can't comment on anything. So you could well, it's complicated because I didn't know, I don't know where mm. the council policy is on it. Uh, yeah. okay. I think that to a certain extent, the council policy would would be in, in on, on my side for me to yeah. say if you're going to be racist, don't you come into this library. Yeah. The thing is, he's bringing in an old lady who yeah. can't get to the library without, without him, him coming in. And, you know, he's old, he's a product of his generation. Yeah. Not that I'm fucking defending that generation. No, 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 and my dad's no. older than him and, and it's not got yeah. the same kind of attitudes. So it's not it's not all about that. Mm-hmm. Publicly, I apologise for not getting rid of him. <laughs> no, I felt right. like I, I should have got rid of him at the time. But I'm glad that you were oblivious. No, I didn't even notice it. <laughs> it's like all, all these right. years I've been my... worried about this and you, no. you weren't even aware. I didn't even notice. Brilliant. Yeah. I guess, like, following on from that kind of weird topic to, to bring yeah. up, 
I mean, so you, 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 grew, you grew up in, in North London where yeah. the communities aren't just diverse in terms of finances and, and, and class, they're also di- diverse in terms of, yeah, in terms of race. So, I mean, but, but like within you and your friends, was it like, I, I, know, I know a few of your friends or I've met some of your yeah. friends and, you know, you are all the races. Yeah. I don't know if that's a correct thing to say or whatever, but how was that? I mean, was it, yeah, like, do you think, think London's an easy place to... Oh, for sure. Can... There's a lot more multicultural than other areas yeah. of England, especially in the, like, outside of London. Right. So I think, like, I'm just oblivious to it because I've never experienced that. And right. Yeah. It didn't occur to me that I would ever experience because it's so... Right. But it's funny. I mean, I know a lot of people. I mean, there were, there were lots of racist incidents in the library. There were lots of people who, you know, got told off, and lots of complicated racial things occasionally happened in the library service. So I was completely oblivious to all. I, I mean, did not notice. You didn't not 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 around you, but just oh, okay. as um, you know, more generally, yeah. if you're like a scale free, you find yeah. you know you know about the things going on yeah. that people have. Our boss was from a certain generation too. I mean, I don't know what her kind of full attitude is yeah. about these things were. I mean that's the thing because you've got like kind of old school white Londoners yeah. who have certain kind of <laughs> attitudes so I mean London's not as as, as kind of it's not a, a multicultural paradise as far as I can see but yeah. it's great that you were having a, yeah, a, an experience like, of yeah I really didn't like touch upon my existence or like, any type of racist stuff so. right yeah. I mean and is that is that carried on in, in the in the academic um, world or yeah, I mean, do like, you find because like the majority of academics come all the way all over Europe, all over the world. So right. it's like, and we go over to them, and it's like it's a two-way street. So yeah. it's never an issue. Well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the what what we hope, what I'd hoped society was at. I mean, I think again, these things really depend on your class, your situation. Yeah. Like you're you're you know you're around super educated people they're probably super educated yeah. at least a little bit about not being okay. racist right? <laughs> exactly. I mean you know the the, the, um, the subconscious stuff that people don't know about they yeah. probably haven't addressed I don't know but yeah. I, I mean I don't know I don't know what I've addressed I don't know what you've addressed <laughs> I don't know anyone's addressed necessarily but I mean the overt stuff yeah. hopefully is gone yeah. from the academic world yeah it doesn't seem too present but again maybe I'm just oblivious to it I don't think I am I think it's pretty like, yeah well that's Good. Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah, that well, yeah. that is great. I mean, yeah. and, and that's what I hope. Like, I mean, you know, I hope for a world where people aren't getting no, kind of, exactly. like yeah. racial experiences that are kind of negative in this country. I mean, I, that's. I mean, certainly, my friends who are not white haven't all had plain yeah. sailing happy experiences yeah. there in this country. Well, in fact, my fam, my family who are not white, have yeah. also. I've, I mean, even I. Because my niece is mixed race, mm-hmm. and so I've experienced walking down the street with her and uh, having sort of racial attitudes about. Just a child. I know, but it's like a white guy holding the hand of a of a mixed race girl. People have weird no, assumptions so about that. Yeah, it's so weird. I'm like on all sides as well, you know, like not just white people oh, being really? funny about that. Yeah. I think we'd be past that now. No, I'm, I, yeah, and, and in many ways, some people, some yeah. people's existences are, and that's yeah. great. I mean, I just hope that it happens, hope that it fans out and covers mm. everybody. Yeah. I mean, it's always a funny thing to talk about on, on mic on the, in these conversations. <laughs> like, I never know whether talking about race is, like, appropriate or not, you know, because yeah. I don't want to define anyone by anything, right? Yeah. Like, so, I mean, I don't necessarily mm. mention someone's sexuality or, 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 or whatever, but sometimes these kind of topics... Seem, seem logical to address. Yeah. 
And, and what I find interesting about it is uh, because it's audio, nobody knows yeah. uh, until it's addressed. It's so uh, they could they could assume that everybody is a person of colour. Yeah. I mean, they don't. I'm, I'm sure they assume that everybody's white because that's the unfortunate default <laughs> yeah. of culture. But uh, I mean, yeah, I can dig myself into like complicated knots around this <laughs> for longer. But I think I'll uh, I'll. I'll I'll, I'll move away. Did, what was working in the libraries like for you then? You said you were obliv- oblivious mostly of the people coming in. But, I mean, what was what um, was that like? I think the particular library we worked in was quite nice because it was just like old dears coming in and like young families as well. Right. It was quite nice, and it was a very quiet library. It wasn't like well, it's in the it's in the well-to-do area of, yeah, of Anfield, yeah, so it, right. it was in lots of ways easy for that. Yeah, yeah. and it was just like like the people that worked there. Were easy. Yeah, I did like the fact that I was treated like a child a little bit. Because <laughs> I was like one of the younger people there, right? Um, which I didn't mind. So I don't mind being treated like a child. Well, I, I think working in the libraries is a sweet job for a casual. Yeah, not much responsibility, right. which is nice. Yeah, you just like told oh. Order these books to the Dewey Decimal System. It's like, oh, okay, that takes about four hours. That's nearly the whole day gone. <laughs> right, and that's kind of the, it's the grunt work that cabins yeah. get given as well. Exactly. Like, yeah, sort sorting. Yeah, that's a lot like, of what you have to do. Yeah. Which is fine, I don't mind that. Well, I think it's an idea. I, I think I would have loved to work in the libraries as a casual. Yeah. I think I've had it harder working in the libraries as a as a not a casual because it's yeah. much more complicated, there's lots more responsibilities and blah, blah, blah things yeah. going on. Whereas I always thought, yeah, when I saw you guys coming in on a Saturday or like for three yeah. hours in the evening, I was like, yes, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's job. the job. That's the job I would just should have yeah, got as a teenager. Nice. And like, over Christmas holidays, obviously, we had really long breaks from uni. Right. So I was always around. Um, Right, and there yeah. was always extra work in the yeah. summers and stuff. Yeah, because that was it, right, you'd go off and then you'd come back. Yeah, so I'd stay for every Saturday, so I commuted to uni from home, so it wasn't that far. But then, in, like, in the summer, I was just there every day in the library, just, like, working. And did you have to And did you have to have any other day jobs after that while you were being at, like, doing your academic stuff, or is that just the stuff um, you talked about, like, knocking on doors and so the desperate I, moment after you was finished? I don't think you can call them jobs, so I only stuck them out for, like, a day or two. I never got paid for them, so I was just like, oh, I don't care anymore. I just can't face going in. I quit. But so I carried on being at the library until I finished my masters. I was coming up to my masters, and I was like, actually, I kind of want my Saturdays back. Whilst doing my masters, which was like two days a week, I was working in the lab, and they paid for my masters. And essentially, it was like a scholarship for did lab work. So they paid my masters and PhD. So I was working five days a week, and then Saturday as well. And I was like, oh, I can't bother anymore. So I went two days a week again. Yeah. Like a weekend. I think weekends are pretty useful things yeah. for people's, you know, emotional and mental yeah, and uh, physical lot. well-beings. Yeah, and there's a lot of changes in the library system around that time. And right. I think our manager was leaving like roughly the same time, so I was like, oh, whatever. Yeah, you got out at the right time. Yeah. Certainly, the libraries became a. I mean, the cuts pretty much ripped the heart out of the library yeah. service. I don't just think in Enfield, but I think you know everywhere. I mean, they're t- I, I've heard that like they're closing a lot of the libraries down potentially now. I mean, I don't. I only have a few ears on the ground now. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's been an interesting, or not, you know, interesting. Is a is a is a word that disguises so much. Like it's not just interesting; it's people's yeah. real lives, lives yeah. being like, lost. Okay. Yeah. But I know people that. Um, so another casuals that started there, and they went all the way up to like scale two, yeah. scale threes, and stuff. And I was like, can't imagine doing that. Right. No, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I know those casuals too. Some yeah. Of them. I was um, like, it works for them, which yeah. is great. But 
I couldn't imagine doing that yeah. for like a long term career. So. And is what is your long term career then? I want to have my own lab. You want your own lab? Yeah. Wow. I would like my own lab. It's a lot of work. Generally, so you'd look for like postdoctoral research positions. So I'm just like going for those and like fellowships where people just give me money to do your own research at a specific lab. So I've got three of those. Right. But ultimately, in like 10, 15 years, quite like my own lab. Right. It'll be a good setup. Yeah. What? Well, so you'll be you be in, in charge of a, a team of yeah. academics who would be studying what babies still or yeah, so infant perception, right? Like sensory processing. As as you sort of said earlier on, you didn't choose sensory no. processing, but you become interested in it now. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you wouldn't give it up. Now. No, not quite. Yeah. What's the most kind of fascinating things about it? Well, I like looking at the brain in particular and how the brain processes things and how an infant's brain, like structurally, is quite different. Like the amount of connections in the brain are really different to an adult's brain. Right. And they do process it in very different ways and slightly different things. So I'm quite interested in looking at premature babies as well because they've had such less time to develop especially if they're born at like 26, 30 right. weeks, that 10 weeks could probably make a lot of difference for the brain. And it does make a lot of difference because sometimes the babies are born with deficits. So um, I want to see what it, the trajectory is for those babies. If they have a catch-up in the same way, does their brain compensate in different ways? Are there more connections in a certain area that's more better developed? For example, there's lots of studies with cats and rats. So if you sever a part of the brain that processes visual information, the auditory channels can take some and build like an audio represent, visual representation. So is that the same for babies that have brain atrophy? Yeah. Obviously we can't sever their brains because that's really bad. Right. I mean, but that's a can, good point because like, like when you're talking about brains and babies yeah. it sounds like a fascinating intellectual puzzle but you know obviously they're really <laughs> real human beings yeah, that, that exactly. are part of this puzzle yeah I mean that's a but yeah I mean do, do you like how do you how, like how do you square that the human and the theoretical um, you know? so in my PhD it was just typically developing children so no one with like we didn't include premature babies we didn't include so and the parents sign up for it right so it's like we'd put out a massive mail out and if you're interested in child development they'll sign up and then if a study came up with the babies of the right age we'd ring them up and they would agree to the study and we'd explain it all why the purpose was what the study would be like what would actually happen in the visit and then they would agree so it was more the parents agreeing to them and that's just because they're interested they're not getting any money for it in exchange for it it's not like they're like yeah, get to, getting the baby to take part in loads of studies and right. getting money that way or anything like that. That's super unethical and that's yeah. in everyone's ethics. You can't do that. Right. Well, don't you, in some ways, I can see how that'd be a useful yeah. thing to some parents if you, if it, you know, to get some money for yeah. traveling. I mean, do you pay expenses? Um. So, <laughs> in this current lab, we do. In my old right. lab, it was just really nearby, like within like bus route distance. And, right. And we'd offer them like. Uh, maybe a voucher for a baby shop or something so ah, right. it's going towards a baby rather than that's good yeah yeah is it the puzzle of it that's, that, that interests you the way yeah and the way it can just suddenly go wrong like one tiny change can right. mean quite a big difference like a baby being born two weeks earlier then can actually mean there's actually a lot of brain development that didn't happen and considering that babies are born earlier and earlier all the time and then we've got the medicine has improved so much where these babies have a fighting chance right. but we don't really know what that means longer term for their development so it's 
So right. that kind of question interests me. Interesting. I mean, and I guess one of the, the, the areas that your research though could go go towards as you're sort of like getting getting there getting towards there is like these kind of studies I mean I guess actually these are all babies so it can't ever this stuff can't really be used in a way of like oh we, we won't have that child or we will have that child like let's have a look and see what they're like in utero you're not no. dealing with that so you don't have to worry about the ethics of that no so it's just naturally occurring things it's right. like we give a child autism and then no. we can't do that and we kind of yeah so it's just like naturally occurring events that we may like we can tap into and when when you sort of see babies when you're not working or when you see other other adults I mean are you always thinking about how their brains are working sometimes <laughs> if, like if I know a friend's pregnant I'm like oh I can get you in in nine months time to do my study or something right. like that but I'm really good at guessing babies ages now from just like seeing them <laughs> in the street yeah I'm pretty good at that now yeah you can just you can just gauge it yeah. really good but not so much if I'm on the tube and I see a cute baby I don't think oh I wonder what your brain's like right your first but, reaction is to, to, to smile rather yeah, than to, rather like, prod. Like, yeah, yeah, rather than to like, let's do this visual discrimination task. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no. But it must be weird, I mean, it must be interesting to know about how brains are working. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, like, my hand is on my head at this moment in time, and I'm sort of, like, suddenly aware that I've got a brain inside that skull, <laughs> which I don't normally think about my brain existing yeah. inside, you know, and, like, what you were saying earlier on about you know, neurons firing all the time, electricity, (laughs) even when I'm asleep, like, I know that in theory, I've got a basic biology understanding, but now I'm sort of imagining little kind of (laughs) volcanoes of, like, electricity all over my brain, it's kind of a bit weird. Yeah, that passes really quick. (laughs) Right. So, I don't know, I don't think I ever thought of it in those terms, I think because I studied it from undergrad some science stuff before, Right. that I kind of just accept it. Right. So you don't think about it too much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to be able to stop thinking about my brain for the rest of today. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's been a real pleasure getting better great with you, catching up on all Thank of the you. stuff that's been going on since I last saw you. Yeah. I mean, these these ones are always like ones where I've not seen someone for ages yeah. and I don't even know them that well, like, personally. Like, we knew each other to yeah. work with on a Saturday. It's always a, a, an interesting adventure for me. Like, I, I feel like it's always, when I'm having these kind of conversations, I'm fishing a lot, like, yeah. trying to find out what areas might might be interesting to talk about so I hope it's been an enjoyable no, experience definitely. for you the last question that I ask everybody is do you have anything to plug um no <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so though. well one way that people take that question I mean so some people use it to plug their stuff that they yeah. might want people to know about but another way that people have taken that is like coming up with a, a you know a, almost advice or point of view on the world or like like a, a kind of yeah that's something that they'd like the, the listeners to to consider or think about equally many people have said no they haven't got anything yeah. to plug so don't feel pressured either way. Okay. but i want people to know i want you to have that opportunity yeah. to plug in that way if you wanted to so uh, I literally can't think of anything off the top of my head right now. I know, it's a big one, right? Yeah. Uh, to to come up with a general thing to say to yeah. people. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, never, I would never have asked, have you got any general thing to say to the audience? Yeah. Uh, it's just a few people took it that way. Yeah. I've had to kind of feel like, oh, it's not fair to not do it for other people. Yeah. But it's definitely not a question I'd ever ask people <laughs> cold. Like, I, I totally get why people are like, I should have. If, I'd, if you'd have told me that a week ago, I'd have I thought about it. I'd written something down. I would have yeah, had yeah, something yeah. to plug. I would have found something. Right, right, right. <laughs> so that's fair enough. 
the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Bye, guys. It's always so funny because that's when you remember that they're there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Forget that people are going to listen to them. Right. Bye, everybody. So this conversation was recorded at the start of the year, I think. I did a kind of blitz in December last year and January this year of getting some conversations and Janet was one of those. Facebook suggests to me that she is now married and she also is now, I assume, a doctor and she's got a PhD. So congratulations to her on both of those things. She makes a living by researching how babies respond to the world I make a living or try to make a living by making audio and drama and storytelling in general various different kinds of ways. One of those ways is that I make this show. You can find a PayPal donate button on the SoundCloud page, which you can find by typing in www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. So if you can afford it and if you can throw some money my way, please do so and if you can't i hope you're enjoying the show and tell people about it that's always a good way to pay an artist without actually having to give them any money tell people about it spread the word encourage other people to listen have some conversations with people about this conversation show and you know generally speaking if i'm ever going to do a plug i think having conversations with people is a great thing it's changed my life i'm really glad that i've started to do it more and that I'm learning to do it better so help me keep doing that throw some money my way you can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can like it on facebook and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.